namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddham dhammam sangam namasami Good Friday means Holy Friday. And this is a time when many people are remembering and honoring Christ and the resurrection. But in the spiritual life that we live, especially as monastics, every day is holy. Every day is holy for us. And how is it holy? It's holy if we make it good. And how do we make it good? We make it good if we practice the Buddha's teachings. And when we enter the monastery, it's a a step that it's very hard to fathom what we're doing until we do it. And even as we do it, and even after doing it and doing it and doing it, we still may not realize the depth of it, the import of it, the power of it. I certainly didn't realize that when I became a nun. I entered the monastery. I didn't know it was going to be for life, but my teacher knew, Sayadaw Upandita. Some of you may have sat with him. He was very wise, and I would say he was psychic. So he knew what was good for me more than I knew. And when you trust, when you meet somebody that you feel a depth of trust in because you see the effect of the practice on them, then you can give up your life even to that practice, knowing that that may be a possibility for oneself. And that's what led me to this condition, 32 or so years ago, back in Burma, when now it's called Myanmar, when it was a very different place. The world has changed so. Even in the time of the Buddha, human beings had the same conditions to live through. And those conditions we all know. Birth, you get born, you're a human being, you're a little baby, you have parents, they look after you or they don't look after you and then you grow up and you have to look after yourself or you don't look after yourself (laughs) and then you get sick or you don't get sick but we die that's for sure and all of that is nature there's nothing wrong in any of that that's the human condition and it's a wonderful thing to understand the naturalness of that 
And then in entering the monastery, we come in like newbies, <laughs> maybe like some of you who, when you came here the first time, it must have felt strange. But then you have guides and they give you instructions. And of course the Buddha is our most exalted of all guides. And as I said the other night, the teacher is present within us if we can just access that point. And how do we access that point? You don't have to enter a monastery, but there are certain things that we need to be able to develop the path. And I wish that all of you could shave your heads and wear a robe even for a little while, just so you could get a sense of what it's like to what benefits there are in renunciation. Because society doesn't tell us, doesn't reveal the secret. Society keeps feeding us and making us believe that the more we get, the happier we'll be. The paradox is that if we give up everything, we get everything. We get nothing, but that nothing is it. Uh, and we all know that now because <laughs> Ajahn explained it clearly to us. So, um, yeah, I come to the monastery and I start practicing this meditation practice, and or I, I had been doing it for quite some time, but then I saw people in robes and I just thought, I want that, I want that. And I expressed that wish to him. And um, there were a couple of other Westerners there, and one of them took temporary precepts. And I thought, I'll take that. Three months, I can do that. And so I asked for three-month ordination, and he said, no, in your case, it's for life or nothing. So, really? for life or nothing. I was on a long retreat and he said, you go practice and reflect on that. So I did. Well, we had interviews quite frequently, something that is so very helpful, not just when you're on retreat, but throughout life, it's really important to have spiritual guidance and somebody that knows a little bit more. It doesn't have to be somebody who's like a Sayado, Upandita, but somebody who's had a bit of experience and who's the trustworthy guide who can just point you in the right direction. Like you wouldn't just jump into a car and, and go out on the highway and drive because you need to train. And this practice is a training. So since I was on retreat and I was really deeply into the practice, I longed to hear Sayadaw give a Dhamma talk. Even in the middle of the day, he'd be giving the laywomen Dhamma talks sometimes, and I would slip into the back of the room and listen. And one day, I was sitting at the back, and I didn't know much Burmese language, but I knew some Pali words, and just listening to the word Dhamma, or Kilesa, or Kusala, or something like that, my heart would get brightened by the sound because I could get the gist of what he was saying and it lifts up your heart to hear the Dhamma.
And then suddenly he spotted me at the back and I thought, he's going to ask me if I decided. So I tried to slip out the door and he said, wait. (laughs) Mindfully, I was turning the knob. No. And he chased the women out and he called me up to the front. You know, in Burmese culture and Thai also, you, you go on your knees and crawl to the shrine and I put my hands in Anjali. Yes, Sayaro. And he said, did you make up your mind? And I said, no. And he said, will you do it? You know, like the dagger at your throat. And I just gave in. I gave up. I thought, I can do this. Because I knew that he was basically pushing the envelope. And I wanted the best. My heart leapt up to the opportunity, even though I don't think I realized the magnitude of it. I just couldn't. But I had so much faith. And so I jumped in. And he said, you be ready in three days. And then the nuns came and measured me up. And then three days later, I was wearing robes. It was such an exhilarating experience. And there were no women who really spoke English who could give me instructions. I still have a picture of this thin young thing all in pink. I took the ten precepts. I did ask Sayadaw if I could be a bhikkhuni and he said no such thing. Not possible. And then I said, so what's the next best thing? And he said, the seminary, ten precepts. But it didn't matter because for me the training was everything. It's the training in sila, samadhi, and panya. So virtue and then cultivation of the heart. Cultivation means like gardening. So a gardener can't just go away on holiday and leave the garden. Or a farmer who has a field, you have to keep watering, irrigating, and protecting the the crops from from animals and insects. And it reminds me of um, when I lived in India as a laywoman, years before that, I was invited to the home of a farmer and he took me out to show me his field and he said, this is for the family and this is for the crows. And I thought, how generous is that, that you purposely grow your crop for the, to feed the birds? In the West, I'd never heard of such a thing. And I learned at Sayada's monastery, when they celebrate a birthday, on your birthday, you give everybody else a present. And that taught me about generosity. Because I'd never seen that as a kid growing up. When I had a birthday, I wanted everyone to give me a present. That's what we do, right? But there, what a turnaround. So Sayadaw gave everyone a present on his birthday. Well, he didn't have anything, but people over the year would always give towels and toothpaste and toothbrushes. So everyone got a little towelette and a a toothbrush and some toothpaste. And it was such a wonderful feeling. Just to celebrate Sayadaw's birthday, I got a gift. So... If we can turn our minds around towards that kind of generosity, really that's what Sayadaw 
asked me to do is be as generous as you can with your life. So give your life to the path. And over the years, that vow has been something that has held me to starting again, to like in the middle of a time when I wasn't getting enough meals in New Zealand, and I thought, I can't do this. I need to eat. And I was living alone in a a small village where there weren't really any Buddhists. There were kind people. In fact, there are kind people everywhere. But it's a kind of strange thing to be a grown-up woman walking around dressed like this with no hair and in a a non-Buddhist culture expecting other people to feed you and them, them not really knowing what you're doing, except for a few. And when they were on holiday, I really suffered. Um, people would forget to come, or they, they didn't think it was important to come before noon. So the food would show up, but I couldn't eat it, because to keep my vows, I could not touch the food beyond noon. But they didn't know that. So I sat in front of my shrine one day when the lunch didn't come, and I started sobbing and thinking, I can't do this. And then I looked at the Buddha statue, and I remembered my vow. Yes, Sayadaw, for life. I took the precepts for life. And I thought, wow, I can't leave this. I've taken a lifetime vow. That's a serious thing. That's a commitment. I can't bargain with the Buddha. I didn't take that vow... I didn't say, Saida, will the Buddha feed me every day? I didn't ask. I just took the vow. I took the vows, shaved the head. Actually, the nuns shaved my head. And that was quite sweet. They chanted the whole time. And it was very hard to cut. And I thought, there's something wrong with me. <laughs> but then I found out that the razor was dull, and they went away and got a new one. It was a cutthroat razor. I was really scared. You know, we do. We always think, I'm not worthy. I I don't deserve this. It's not going to happen. And it did. But to remember that and to have that holding me through those hard times, and then I realized I wasn't really that hungry. But my mind was hungry. It was my opinion. I should be getting food. The monks get fed every day. How come I'm not being, you know... That was just judgment, opinion, attitude, lack of gratitude. I had a shelter. I was getting breakfast. I had a big breakfast. And I could still finish some of the bread. I wasn't really going to go hungry. It was just the feeling of being left to it on my own, of being isolated, alienated, um, unattended to, uncared for, unconnected. Somebody was saying, the feeling of not being connected is very difficult to do this without spiritual companions. But then, when I remembered my vow, Sayada was right there, the Buddha was there, and I was fulfilling my promise, and I started to feel like, come on, don't be a sissy, you can do this. And all that, I was able to regain my courage and my stamina 
But yeah, no matter what, even if I have to go hungry. And I remember one time, Sairo was leading the lay people. He was giving them instructions in the monastery. And one woman was there on retreat with her mother. And her mother died. And she came to Sairo completely distraught. She was overwhelmed with grief and despair. And Sairo said, she's very fortunate she died while she was practicing mindfulness. And she will have a very good rebirth. That kind of cut through the grief totally. And he encouraged her. You rejoice and you dedicate your practice to your mother and you realize the blessing of a death in the midst of this practice. The body can never be saved, but the mind can be freed. So if we remember that, then we can give the utmost generosity to mental cultivation. Like the farmer that gives the utmost generosity not just to his family, but to the birds also, so generous. And the teacher is always generous to us if we can remember the teacher when we're, when we're stuck, when we're down, when we're full of fear, when we feel like, I can't do this, this is too big for me. So, yeah, I was able to train my mind again and again and again that, no, I can... I, and of course, not long after that, more food started to be offered. And I was amazed at how the conditions changed because I made myself available to the situation when it was difficult. And you know what? Things change. If you have patience, if you have the courage, and if your attitude also changes and you use your resolve and your determination to guard your precepts, to guard your virtue, to cultivate the path, cultivate your mental health and incline the mind towards that in, inner freedom. The body is, is not free. The body is in this realm. It's bound for the elements. The elements return to the elements. What is wrong in that? If we die consciously, peacefully, with having lived a beautiful life, there couldn't be a better death. And the death of the body is not the death of the practice. Because if we've practiced well, we get the benefits. We are the owners of our actions, the heirs to our actions, and we inherit its results. We live supported by our virtue. We live supported by our generosity and our virtue. And that's how we can clarify the mind. If, if we're living a messy life, if we don't have access to teachers, if we don't have good spiritual friends, if we don't um, practice mindfulness and keep the mind fresh and alert moment by moment in life, not just in the monastery or in the meditation hall, but in everyday activity, we have to keep this practice alive. Otherwise, every time we come back, that's like regression. Then we have to do very quick therapy on ourselves to get back into gear, so to speak, and re resurrect what, we've, what we wish for, what we may have um, practiced in the past. We bring it back to life. <laughs> 
But truly, if we sustain this practice in a continuous and vigilant way, then our wisdom will become so sharp that we can cut through all the moments of weakness and all the moments of impact from the world, from within, all the traumas, whatever we've suffered. I remember once, um, this was about 12 years ago, maybe a little more, I was in Malaysia, and somebody had invited me to attend their mother's memorial service in a temple. And dressed like this in my robes, I came to the temple, and the abbot of the temple was standing at the gate. And of course, in those days, bhikkhuni ordination is something that the Buddha introduced. It's not something we made up because of women's lib. I mean, this is an age-old phenomena two and a half millennia ago. Um, the Buddha's own mum, stepmum, surrogate mum, I should say, his auntie, because his mother died in childbirth, she became a bhikkhuni at the age of 65. And she lived to 120 or some great age, as people did in those days. And she became fully enlightened. What a role model for us. But to this monk, I was wearing a monk's robe. And he didn't say, hello, or um, can I help you? He just said, female? And I felt myself like that beautiful statue at the back, the Kuan Yin statue that's cracking naturally. It's a piece of wood. I felt split down the middle, like such an impact Because I have, you know, I grew up in quite a conservative family and my brother was the smart one and all that kind of conditioning that we get in this gender thing. But to be in the robe and to be hit by it like that in just in in such an unexpected way from somebody that I would respect, I would make Anjali to, I would bow and pay respects to, bowing is a way of showing respect, I I felt suddenly, what do I do with this? I was lost. I was in a wilderness for a few moments. And I almost burst into tears, but I restrained. And I I kind of did an inner help me, help me. How do I do? What do I do? Because nothing like that had ever happened with so much ferocity. And I was alone. There were no nuns with me. There were some laywomen who were also quite shocked, but he was the boss. So they couldn't, they were too shy to say anything. And then he he just marched in. So I took a deep breath and I thought, I cannot abandon this devotee who wants me to come and chant for her mother. I've been invited, so I'm going in. And I wasn't sure what would happen, but I thought, I have a right to go in. My sila, my virtue is intact, and I relied on that. And I just went in. So I thought, what do I do? I bow to the monk. And he was sitting in his high seat where the abbot sits, and I went up to him, and he he was not looking friendly at all. (laughs) And I got on my knees, and I bowed. And while I was bowing, I tried to hold in my mind, I bowed to the aspiration of this being to realize Nibbana. 
I bow with forgiveness, I bow with goodwill to this monk who's trying to live the holy life. He doesn't know any better. He's doing the best he can. But I was shaking. I was shaking. And then he ordered me to go sit with the laywomen. So I just crawled down and went and sat with the laywomen. Well, you know what the laywomen did? They picked up my sitting cloth and they put it in the front where the monks were. And then then they took my bowl and they put it where the monks were. They, they put my bowl there, and the monks couldn't do anything. <laughs> and I was, I was terrified. I thought, I, I'm in the middle here, but just sila samadhi panya. What's the practice? Access the teacher. Sayadaw, help me. Lord Buddha, help me here. And the teacher is present. And I sat there. The monks ate not all traditions practice the austerity kind of dutangas that we do where we eat everything in one bowl. Well, they sat at a table and ate on plates and I sat on the floor happily eating out of my bowl after the food was offered and they chanted and because I wasn't really near them, I chanted my heart out, the blessing chant and the lay women were so pleased and happy and we did the memorial and then I left, and the abbot left, and never, never tried to bother me after that. But what a teaching! It was—I cannot forget how, you know, in a moment of so much fear and and terror, and being triggered, being triggered by those old impacts from from teenagehood or from being bullied or whatever, because the practice has a power. And the virtue and the the virtue and the steadiness of mind that one gets from being mindful and being aware of what we're feeling in that moment of terror gives us enough balance and enough poise to make a choice that doesn't retaliate. We don't give back the anger. We give the best we can. So we try to be generous. What is the most generous thing I can offer in this mo- hopeless feeling moment? I can offer a good word. I can offer non-ill will. I can offer non-harm. I can offer safety to those women and to the monks. I'm not, I'm not trying to threaten them. I just want to help these lay women. And I want a meal. <laughs> so I ate, but it was quite a full meal of of dhamma food and it gave me the strength to face many other situations which i would have to face later coming to canada and trying to set up a community a hermitage where women could train at a time when in the tradition that i was that i had been growing up in kind of excommunicated me because i had gone and taken full ordination but um, there are still these wonderful monks like Ajahn Punadamo who takes the risk of teaching with um, bhikkhunis even though that might not be approved of. And so it's, it takes a lot of courage to stick up for what you, what you know the Buddha would approve of. And what is, what is the, the true Dhamma choice? How can we keep our precepts and 
I wish that in lay life there was um, more training in Vinaya. Like the five precepts are actually quite deep and and they're they're a wonderful foundation for this practice. And if people would realize the importance of renouncing the gratification that one might get from having a joint or whatever or the or just the occasional I don't I don't lose my mindfulness really. It's like that time when I had to not bargain with the Buddha, I think we cannot compromise our virtue because if we compromise that, then we're chipping away what will best support us in this world that is so tumultuous and chaotic, conflicted and full of harm and danger. We think that the world is a safe place. We used to. I think more and more people realize it isn't, but we still go out to the world. We still get pulled by it. We still lose our balance with it. And sometimes we break our precepts because our friends say, oh, it's okay. You know, come on, just one little one little drink. It won't hurt. But the five precepts, the Buddha was pretty clear about how to do it. And it's such a tiny thing to give up for a great reward. And so is the the dedication to the practice of cultivating the heart. Cultivating the heart means bringing up the sublime abidings. When other people aren't doing it, that's generosity. That's a giving that comes from a place where we, we feel we don't have enough. It's like when I, as a young woman, I went trekking in the Himalayas and I remember going to a very poor village and you know people they practiced hospitality in those days like the guest is God so you come in and they have really the most meager meal you can imagine but they're putting out the plates and they're feeding the guest first and then that one time I realized that they were actually giving me their food. And I felt that I had to eat a little bit of it. I didn't eat my fill because I knew this is their dinner. But they wouldn't be happy if you didn't eat it because they got so much joy from giving to the traveler who was tired and who needed a roof and, and who needed feeding and strength for the rest of the journey. To recognize the joy of generosity, that is the beginning of recognizing the joy of the practice of finding the truth in the mind, finding that shininess, that brilliance, that joy within the heart. It's not in the world. We think the world is going to give us some lasting joy, but over and over again, the gratification of the world disappoints us and all our our most precious devices and possessions, they go in the cupboard and they sit there and rot because we want something new. We want something exciting. We want the the desire to be fulfilled and the desire is never fulfilled. That's the danger. The danger of the world is that there is no fulfillment in samsara. There is no perfection in samsara. But there is fulfillment in mental cultivation, there is Nibbana, there is the freedom from suffering, and there is 
that freedom that's possible for each of us and a joy that is lasting and is imperturbable in the face of the worst enemy or in the face of death, even in the face of losing our body. Because if, we lived, if we've lived a life of virtue, cultivating our field of practice, wherever we might be, with whatever burden our kama has given us, then we will be able to practice goodwill in the midst of ill will, in the midst of hostility. We'll be able to practice compassion when people treat us rough or when they terrorize us or denigrate us. We'll be able to practice uh, rejoicing when somebody else gets the job we wanted. We'll be able to practice equanimity when there's loss or grief of our loved ones, with our loved ones, with those dear to us, or within our own hearts. But these are practices. We have to be very, very patient and go to that which best supports us. As long as we remember that the tools of the practice are to be learned and the practice has to be kept alive, then if the flame is kept burning, then the real fire in the heart, the fire of greed, the fire of hatred, and the fire of delusion will be extinguished. But the flame of freedom will be burning brightly, and that will light our way forward every time. Even in the darkness. So I wanted to share a a little poem with you a monk asked Master Fa Yen, what is the principle of the highest truth? What is the principle of the highest truth? And the Master replied, first, I pray that you will live it. Second, I pray that you will live it. That is the principle of the highest truth. It, it's to be lived. It's to be known here within us, here and now, in this moment, moment by moment. Don't let one moment go by without goodwill in your heart. That will be a a moment that's lost. That's a quote from Brother Lawrence, an early, many centuries ago, Christian brother. He worked in the kitchen, and he became very illumined enlightened, awakened, and all the brothers respected him more than anyone. And then he became a monk. He used to make their shoes after he finished work in the kitchen. A very inspirational figure, but he said that. Let not one moment of life go by when you don't bear that quality of love in your heart. Unconditional love. Difficult to do. So, We begin now. We lose it, and then we retrieve it. We lose it, we resurrect it. That's the resurrection. To bring that quality back into the heart, even when our boat is about to tip over in the midst of a blizzard, and we think we're going to die, we resurrect that quality of loving kindness, of compassion, of rejoicing in the goodness of our life 
and of equanimity with all conditions. Because if we die in that way, we will have died wisely and we might realize Nibbana in that last breath. I once sailed across the Atlantic Ocean in a small boat with three other crazy people. (laughs) We were young and adventurous and we ended up on the headwinds of a hurricane trying to escape. But sure enough, we lost rigging. The waves were like skyscrapers high and I thought it was the end of me. And I remember being down in the hull of the boat, bent over the loo, vomiting. We were all seasick and thinking, I'm going to, this is, I'm going to die. I was 20, 21. I'm going to die here. And I remembered my parents and I felt incredible gratitude for them. And I thought, this boat is going to disappear in the ocean in the blink of an eye and nobody will even see. And I'll just be gone. But I had such a strong awareness of how quick death would come that I didn't feel fear. I was just in awe that that's how quick life is. It's like like the sinking of a little boat in the middle of the wilderness. But my mind was calm, and that surprised me. And I remembered we were trying to get um, a signal on the shortwave radio, but we couldn't connect to any land at all. There were just all these different languages because we're not far from... In the middle of the ocean, you can hear Europe, many different, and West Africa. So we were hearing all these languages, and it was a cacophony of confusion. It meant nothing. But the only language that spoke to me was the language of silence. And I think I had a spiritual moment of just, that's it. That's all I need. And I was kind of ready. But then we survived, obviously. <laughs> so to have, to have that awareness that the world, that all of this journey that we're on, it's really very, very brief. It's a flicker. So it's really important how we live our lives and how we navigate ourselves through the storms. <coughs> to try not to lose your rigging. Don't chase hurricanes. Don't don't get caught up in things that are beyond your limits. Practice within your limits and get good guidance. Keep spiritual friends and know it's a gradual training. It's very gradual. But it does have the most amazing fruits that we can gain and strengthen the mind, the heart, with. And it starts and ends with giving, giving up, giving for, forgiving. Forgiving leads to generosity, leads to virtue, leads to mental strength and unification of mind, which leads to the most secure and excellent landing strip for wisdom. The giant jet can land when it has a proper landing strip and the most dynamic wisdom possible for us, the Dhamma wisdom that we long for, can land in a heart that is calmed, 
that is tranquil, that has a refuge, that has security in that which can offer us true security, that is full of light, not darkness, that can recognize that suffering is our teacher. If we don't suffer, then there's no friction. Then we just get lost in pleasure. But when we can see pain and know the emptiness of the pain, it doesn't belong to us. It's just a transient experience from which we can learn so much. And if we can face it courageously, we can learn the three characteristics in that moment of pain and in the next moment of pain until the three characteristics of impermanent, imperfect, dukkha then, and impersonal, empty, that becomes emblazoned in the heart. That is the landing strip for Nibbana. One of those three gateways. So I offer that for your reflection tonight. Anamayan Dhamma Kataya Sadhu Karanta Dhamma Say.